Your Food with Warty, episode 128. For links and more, visit the show notes at knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash 128. See you there. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Know Your Food with Warty. I'm Warty in Southwest Oregon, a traditional food blogger at ganalfglins.com and knowyourfoodpodcast.com. I'm glad you're here. This is the podcast where we're all about ditching those poisonous processed foods, breaking free from the conventional food paradigm, and instead embracing whole foods raised, saved, and prepared with traditional methods. It's fun, it's delicious, and it's healthy. You're on your way to looking good, feeling good, and most importantly, doing good. Hey everyone, welcome. Going to open with the tip of the week. And um, it is, how do you know if your ferment is done? And you may or may not know this, but I have been doing a whole video series that I'm calling Lacto-Fermentation 101, and I just put up the seventh video. Um, Well, actually, by the time this podcast goes up, I will have the eighth video up. They're going up periodically on the blog, and um, you can check them all out at knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash LF101 for Lacto-Fermentation 101. And the tip of the week today, I want to focus on um, the seventh video that I've added, which answers the question. And by the way, these are just really quick videos that answer a common question about fermentation. So how do you know if your ferment is done? Well, it's bubbling away. And you're probably curious, wondering, is it done yet? What does it taste like? Well, I just want to encourage you to go ahead and open it up and smell it and taste it because that is going to help you be in touch with it and learn about it. It's the most important thing. The, the fermenting is like experience and discovery, and you learn about it as you interact with the food. No two ferments are going to be exactly alike, just like no two people are going to be exactly alike or love the same result. Fermenting is a very flexible process, so the best way for you to succeed is to interact with your ferment so that you can stop it or let it keep going so that you can know what it's doing so that then you can control it better in the future. You just want to see what's going on in the jar, and that involves opening, smelling, and tasting. And so, you know, let's say you've opened your jar, you're done checking it, you just repack it carefully, you resubmerge the mixture under the brine or pack it down well so it can continue its happy happy fermenting if you want to let it go longer. Now, also keep in mind if you're following recipe, your ferment may not be behaving like the recipe says. This is because of all the variables. There's differences in room temperature, a starter culture, or you didn't add a starter culture except for salt, the quality of the foods, your personal preferences. So you might find that your ferment is done sooner than the recipe calls for, or you might find that because it's colder in your house that it takes twice as long. Um, Or maybe it just takes longer because you like it that way better. Uh, Or you might find fewer or more bubbles than the recipe mentions. So this is all within the realm of normal. And so I want to encourage you, the more hands-on you are with your ferments, the sooner you're going to be a whiz at knowing just when something is done to your liking. Now, having said all that, I'm going to give you some typical signs that a ferment is done. You know, there's this continuum of what's within the realm of normal. And here's some signs that it's done. And then Whether you stop it short a little bit or go a little bit longer is sort of preference. But typical signs of it being dumb is done, not dumb, uh, done, is you would see a dimming or a brightening of the food colors. 
you have a sour taste, and that's from the acids being produced by the fermenting organisms, so it gets more sour. You, your food will soften because actually the fermentation is a form of cooking. Um, the Latin word from which we get fermentation, for vera means to boil. And that's because fermentation, the bubbles, those are the gases produced by the organisms. It looks like it's boiling. Um, and that's really a form of cooking. I mean, it's the organisms are doing it. They're digesting the sugars, and that softens the food. It's not like heat cooking, but it is a, um, you know, like cooking. It's softening the food and pre-digesting it, fermenting it. Uh, hopefully, though, you've still got a crunchy result. You don't want soft and mushy. Think about pickles or sauerkraut. They get the cabbage gets softened, the pickles get softened, but they're still crunchy. So you don't want mushy. You want soft but crunchy. And some things don't stay crunchy. Um, you know, like if you were fermenting a, a fruit paste or something, you know, crunch is not a factor there. So crunch is applicable to the food you're fermenting. And finally, a sign that a ferment is done or around done is the flavor. The flavor. Um, is not so simple anymore. It's complex. It has the sour and the salt. And, and then, of course, there's the texture. So it's, um, it's just more complex. And so those are some tips for you on how to know when your ferment is done. So many more quick videos and transcripts await you in my Lactofermentation 101 series. You can get to it at knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash LF101. Uh, things about salt, what kind of salt to use, can you skip the salt, do you have to use whey, the question I just answered, and more. So check it out, knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash LF101. Hi, I'm Wardy, a traditional cooking expert and food blogger at traditionalcookingschool.com. For years, my family struggled with food-related health problems like eczema and food allergies, but we don't anymore. And I'd love to show you that preparing whole foods with traditional methods is easy, delicious, and super good for you, too. So just go to traditionalcookingschool.com free, and I'll show you how easily you can do it, too. I'll give you five free videos that include my favorite traditional cooking techniques, plus printable at-a-glance fact sheets as a handy reference. So if you're ready to start looking good, feeling good, and most importantly, doing good, then visit traditionalcookingschool.com slash free today. Now today's episode is all about listener questions. I love doing these episodes. We build up the questions over time. Um, and then I, of course, you know, adding them to the queue. And so then when it's time to do an episode like this, we've got a great selection for you. And I love how um, just natural it is for the content or the things that we talk about to just be so robust and cover so much ground. Okay, so the first question is from Mayra. She says, I love kombucha and I've been brewing it for almost a year now, but I recently read that it's bad for candida and that it can cause candida. Is this true? Thanks, Mayra. Okay, um, no, it's not true that candida, that kombucha can cause candida. <laughs> the cultures involved in kombucha are beneficial bacteria and yeast, where the candida is a yeast slash fungus, completely different organism. Now, um, so no, kombucha is not going to cause candida. However, 
if you are brewing kombucha or drinking kombucha that's on the sweet side, the making of kombucha involves the fermentation of sweet tea. And so that sweetness in the tea is from sugar and sugar and candida do not go together. Well, actually they go together very well. That's the point. Um, candida loves sugar. (laughs) So if your kombucha is fermented, but not that much, and so it's still on the sweet side and you drink kombucha, then the sugar is feeding the candida in your body. So you can get candida flare-ups. Your candida can get stronger. Um, So kombucha can add to that. Of course, it's not going to cause it. Candida is present actually candida is present probably in all of us or most of us and the more sugars and refined foods we eat and the the poorer our health is the more candida gets a foothold so kombucha sweet kombucha is just you know one food in many that can contribute to candida taking over your body so I'm going to give you some tips here I'm not going to leave it just at that so if you love kombucha and you have candida you would want to um brew it until it's not very sweet. Um, You know, not very much sugar left. You could even go further than that till it's slightly vinegary, and then you would use an allowable sweetener like stevia, if you can do stevia, to um, add some sweetness back to the kombucha, but not sugar sweetness, if you know what I mean. Um, So I hope that's helpful. Thanks for your question, Mayra. Oh, wait, I wanted to say one more thing. Sometimes people talk about kombucha and they say, causes my candida or made my candida worse. Well, kombucha is a, is a purifying, detoxifying, powerful fermented beverage. So um, somebody starts taking it, starts drinking it, it can have a very powerful detoxing effect on them. And so that detoxing can often be, conf- is often like, worse symptoms of whatever their health condition is. So people can say, oh, the kombucha caused it. It could actually be detoxing. And this is a personal thing. So I'm, I'm not going to say it's always detoxing. Somebody could be having a bad reaction to kombucha. But here's the thing. If somebody is experiencing a flare-up because they start drinking kombucha, and I know this is not your situation necessarily because you say you love kombucha and you've been brewing it for a year now. But... Um, If somebody is having a flare-up, worsening symptoms, detoxing, they need to take it slowly because like any probiotic supplement, um, too much can cause this flare-up in your body. So you take it slowly. You may need to cut back. You may need to cut it out and heal a little bit more before you introduce it. But the point is you want to take it slowly to as much as you can tolerate. With detox, it's not more is better. You actually want to... um, Whatever is causing that detox, the symptoms, you want to do it so it's manageable, not so you're miserable. So that's why we talk a lot about taking it slowly with probiotics. Um, Like if you can't handle a whole probiotic capsule supplement, you just want to open it and have like, you know, a couple grains or a fourth of it. Same thing with kombucha. If kombucha is causing a flare-up of any of your symptoms, if you have candida or you have another pathogen overgrowth, um, you would want to reduce how much you're taking and just take it slowly. And as soon as it's manageable for a while, you know, a week or two, you increase a little bit. And of course, I'm not a doctor or a healthcare practitioner. So take everything I'm saying with a grain of salt and you'd want to make your own 
uh, healthcare decisions. All right, next question is from, oh, I didn't paste it into my document. Let me pause and go get your name. All right, Lindsay H. So glad I looked that up because I like to know who I'm talking to. All right, so this is what Lindsay writes. Due to some health issues in our family, I've recently started exploring the world of sourdough. Thanks to your wonderful site, your ebook, and short sourdough course, I have successfully started my first starter and had some successful tortillas and pancakes. My husband is thankful to be able to eat bread again, and I'm looking forward to making some loaves of sourdough bread in the near future. My question is this. Is there an alternative to sourdough that will still yield bread that is edible for those that have digestive issues and need the soaked fermented grains? Presently, we are in the States, but soon we will be returning to our home in the bush of West West Africa, where we serve as missionaries. I would love to get a sourdough starter going there and continue baking sourdough things, but the climate there will prevent me from doing that, based on what I've read in the sourdough ebook. My kitchen is often over 100 degrees, sometimes reaching over 110 degrees. Fahrenheit. So I'm thinking that growing and keeping a starter will not be possible. I guess my question is twofold. One, is it even possible to grow a starter and bake sourdough goods in that high of a temperature? And two, if not, what other alternatives do I have for making bread, including tortillas, muffins, etc., that is easily digestible, fermented, soaked? I know that baker's yeast isn't the best, but since it is an option for me in Africa, it's readily available. Is it possible to soak, ferment the grains? whole wheat flour, and bake with yeast. I would love to know your thoughts and recommendations on this. Thanks so much. Okay, so I'm just going to take your questions one at a time. The first one was, is it even possible to grow a starter and bake sourdough goods in that high of a temperature? Okay, so um, I'm not sure you can start a sourdough starter. I think your best bet is to, from the States, take with you a dehydrated sourdough starter that then you can um, mix with flour and water while you're there. And if there is a season when it's not so hot, that's when you want to reactivate it. Or if there's a season when it's not so hot, that's when you would actually want to start a starter from scratch. Um, If it is very hot, you could restart it, and you could actually put, like, just all the times are going to be shortened tremendously because it's going to just be really hot and fast. And I can't guarantee that it won't you know, grow other things. So it's possible that you could do it like, let's, let's just start with the example of a, a dehydrated starter. So you're going to mix it with flour and water. You're going to leave it at room temperature for a little bit, then you're going to put it in the refrigerator. And, and, and I mean, when it's, when it's reactivated, you're going to feed it and give it a little bit of time at room temperature, but you're mostly going to keep it in the refrigerator. Uh, that's what I'm thinking is a possibility. The other thing is to just shorten all the time. So you're feeding it way more often than we do because it's just burning through its food. Um, But again, I can't guarantee that it's not going to get overtaken by mold or mildew or anything like that. So I really don't know if it's possible to grow a starter and bake sourdough goods. But what I would focus on is actually um, just... I'm assuming you have a refrigerator, but you may not have a refrigerator but I'm going to go with the fact that you do. So I would, I, would, I would actually just be keeping my sourdough starter out just a little bit to get it going and then be keeping it mostly in the refrigerator. 
And I have heard of sourdough starters adapting to refrigerator temperatures because there are organisms that are going to flourish at that lower temperature. So over time, maybe it won't perform well for a while, but over time, if that cooler temperature is providing the right in, or, um, environment for the cool organisms, they're going to get stronger. They're going to get um, proportionately more of the starter, and they could actually just take over and perform very well for you. These are just my thoughts. Um, your second question, what other alternatives do you have for making bread, including tortillas, muffins, etc., that are easily digestible, meaning fermented soaked? Well, I've got a couple possibilities for you. One is to do a um, to look for recipes where you're not keeping a sourdough starter, but you're actually taking some cultured dairy like kefir or yogurt, and you're doing like a overnight kefir bread, and you could or and, and if the recipe calls for um, like overnight at room temperature, then you're actually going to do it like a couple days in the refrigerator. The fridge just slows it down, and you could you could leave it at room temperature for you know, five to 15 to 30 minutes to an hour, whatever tends to work, and then move it into the refrigerator. That initial time at room temperature where it's warm is going to sort of like get it going, but you don't want it to spoil, so then you put it in the refrigerator or whatever kind of cool you have. So you'd want to be looking at um, cultured dairy-soaked breads and recipes. Another option for you in, from the sourdough ebook sourdough e-course is our bucket dough. So if you are able somehow to keep a sourdough starter by feeding it regularly but keeping it cool in the fridge, our bucket dough is so suited to this. You take that sourdough starter and it doesn't have to be domed and bubbly, it just has to be like alive. It's a good culture. And um, you, so you have this starter, the salt, the water, the flour. Um, I think in our recipe, we, we leave it at room temperature for overnight or five to six hours or something like that. So you would shorten that. Then you put it in the refrigerator. It's going to continue to sour over time. I mean, you could be baking with it at day five or six. It's very sour at that point. But see, it is still soured. So what you would be doing is um, using that dough. And in the sourdough ebook, we show you how to use that dough to do all the things you're talking about, from bread to tortillas to English muffins. It's very digestible, and it's suited for keeping it in the fridge to just take out when you need it. So definitely check that out. Um, your third question, well, you mentioned the baker's yeast. So um, that is an option for you, but of course, baker's yeast isn't going to have the same nutritional benefits as sourdough. So again, just to... Um, rehash it all, <laughs> um, experiment with feeding and keeping your starter in the fridge, take a dehydrated starter with you so that you're not having to start one in that um, hot t uh, um, temperature or start one when you're there in the cool weather. Um, and look for cold temp sourdough recipes where you're doing things like our bucket dough, which is actually souring in the fridge. Um, you can also proof bread dough and all kinds of things in the refrigerator. Even recipes that don't call for cool, cool temps, you can actually proof them in the refrigerator. It just takes longer. Um, and I think I already said to look at feeding and keeping your starter in the fridge. So those are my suggestions, Lindsay, and we can talk about it more at the comments on this post, knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash 128. All right, next question is from Donna A. 
Many of us want to eliminate white sugar, sugar substitutes, and any GMOs from our diet, but some recipes call for sugar, which I believe is made from the sugar beet, which is a GMO food. Do you use honey? Do you use coconut sugar? For example, when I make strawberry shortcakes, I've been substituting coconut sugar in the shortcake and in the strawberries. Any other ideas of what I might use that will not affect the consistency or flavor of recipes? Thank you. Okay, Donna, great question. Well, in our family, we do use all the unrefined sweeteners, although not very many of them because we try to keep our sweeteners low. Um, so that includes honey and coconut sugar. I also use stevia. Um, we do maple syrup. In our kombucha, we actually use evaporated cane juice, but the kombucha consumes a lot of that, and it's organic, so it's not a GMO source. Um, you can substitute, and it's kind of trial and error, but here's a couple rules for you. Try to substitute a similar type, so dry for dry. So if the recipe calls for a dry sweetener, use a dry sweetener. Of course, you know if it calls for white sugar and you're using something dark like coconut sugar, you're going to get a stronger flavor, uh, and the coconut sugar is not as fine as white sugar doesn't dissolve. So to combat that, I pretty much whiz in the food processor or the blender. I whiz all my dry sweeteners, natural sweeteners. So whether it's coconut sugar, whether it's um, sucanat or rapadura, whether it's date sugar, I whiz it to a powder because then I don't have to have that problem of it not dissolving in the recipe. It just makes it fine. It's sort of like powdered sugar, which with a unrefined sweetener, Making it into a powder makes it perform very well in recipes that call for a dry sweetener. Now, same thing goes if the recipe has a liquid sweetener, like corn syrup or obviously honey or maple syrup, that's where it's ideal to substitute your preferred liquid sweetener. Honey is a lot more sweet. Um, well, let me say this in a minute. So honey, maple syrup are great liquid sweeteners to use. If you are substituting honey in a recipe that has, or you can substitute honey or maple syrup in recipes that call for dry sweeteners if that recipe has a liquid, because, um, because honey and maple syrup introduce liquid into the recipe, so, you, so the recipe has to have a liquid that you can reduce accordingly. So an example of this would be a recipe like, let's say, muffins and it calls for a cup of sugar. Well, you can substitute maple syrup or honey, but every cup that you substitute, you'd wanna reduce whatever liquid is in that recipe by about an eighth of a cup. So if it calls for water or milk or yogurt or buttermilk, you'd be reducing it accordingly because the honey or the maple syrup have liquid in them. So you gotta reduce. Now, having said all that, you also wanna keep in mind that honey is very sweet. It's more sweet than sugar. So like the rule is two-thirds to three-quarter cup um, of honey for every one cup of sugar. And you, can, and, and you can even reduce, that's just a standard reduction, but all the white flour, white sugar recipes that are out there, which you probably know, they're very sweet. And as we adapt a traditional food lifestyle, we start eating less sweets and we you know, enjoy just the goodness of fruit and things like that. We start... Um, being overwhelmed, at least we do in my family, we're overwhelmed by how sweet like regular ice cream is or a regular cake. It's like, oh, this is just sugar. I can't taste anything else but sugar. So a lot of those recipes out there, you can just automatically off the bat know you're going to cut the sugar in half. And so then if you're using honey, you could actually reduce even more. Now, um, around Christmas time um, in 2000. 
14, we had an article on the Traditional Cooking School blog to help you do real food makeovers to your holiday recipes, and there's a whole section on sugar and tips for switching and reducing sugar. So go to knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash makeovers, and you'll get all the tips, not only on sugar, but other things in, um, in recipes that you can convert to real food. Okay, so I hope that was helpful, and thanks so much for your question, Donna. Next question is from Mary Ann C., and her website is healingwhisperer.com. Thank you so much for your question, Mary Ann, and telling us um, about you. She says, my question is, do you sprout your einkorn before you grind it? Sprouting grains has become a very popular thing lately to help the grain become more digestible. I was just curious if you did that. Otherwise, if you don't, it would be much easier to grind the grain without sprouting it, without sprouting it, drying it, then grinding it. Thanks. All right. So, Marianne, yes, I do sprout einkorn just like I've sprouted spelt or wheat. I have a particular purpose for it because um, I like to use traditional preparation methods in all our grain-based baked goods. So traditional meaning soaking, sprouting, or fermenting. But I really prefer fermentation or sourdough because it is the most effective to make the grains most nutritious and digestible. However, it requires that you soak your flour with a starter that has water or the recipe has some liquid. And there are some recipes that you do not want to introduce liquid, like cookies, for instance. Have you seen a co- There's very few cookie recipes that it calls for milk or water, right? I mean, you, it's basically wet from the fat. <laughs> um, so if you're making cookies, you, your only option, unless you use a traditional food pr- um, let me say, if you're making cookies, you got to use straight flour, and you, there's no soak. There's no way to soak it. Um, so, one solution for that is to sprout your einkorn or whatever grain you're using for that recipe, because sprouting is a traditional method. You can do it before you get to the flour stage, and so then it's sort of like you've already done all the preparation. You can make the cookies instantly. Sprouted flour allows you to do instant baking without having to allow for the soaking, sprouting, or fermentation stage, or I should say soaking or sourdough stages. That makes sense. Um, You do want to keep in mind that sprouting changes the flavor a bit. It also changes the texture. I found that things are more crumbly because sprouting predigests gluten, and so gluten is often, gluten's not just powerful in bread to provide structure to bread, but it's powerful in muffins and cookies and cakes too. So if it's broken down through sprouting, um, you you can end up with a crumblier texture. So it's really important to use eggs and have other like binders in your uh, baked goods so that they hold together well. Now I want to talk about just a little bit about the traditional food prep methods. So the ones for grains, and I'm going to say them in order of effectiveness, soaking, sprouting, fermenting. So you can soak with an acid medium, you can sprout your grains, You can do sourdough, which means you're combining your flour with your sourdough starter, and it's an active culture of bacteria and yeast, and you do it for ideally seven to eight hours or overnight. And at warm temperatures, an eight-hour to overnight sourdough can effectively reduce the anti-nutrients like phytic acid almost entirely. And that is why we do the soaking, sprouting, and fermenting. It's to reduce phytic acid. Phytic acid binds with minerals in our digestive tract and can lead over time to mineral deficiencies. So 
When you prepare grains, that's one of the big goals with traditional methods is to reduce phytic acid. So soaking, sprouting, and fermenting, or fermenting slash sourdough, are effective at that, sourdough being the most. Now, you can actually um, sprout your einkorn or spelt or wheat or rye or whatever grain you're using. You can sprout it dry it, grind it, and then use it in a sourdough recipe. Or you can sprout it, dry it, grind it, and just use it straight in those cookies I mentioned earlier. If you do combine it in a sourdough method, it's like making it even more nutritious and digestible. Of course, you have more of a breakdown of gluten, so you, you end up with a uh, possibly more finicky texture, but sometimes, depending on the recipe, it really doesn't matter. You know, if you've got plenty of eggs and it's not that kind of a recipe, it's not a big deal. Um, so the point of doing that would be even more digestibility and nutrition. And I'm not advocating for it necessarily. I don't, uh, I don't, I hardly ever go to the trouble of sprouting and then sourdough. If I sprout, it's so I can use the flour instantly in recipes. Um, sourdough, we, in our family, sourdough, warm temp and long enough is plenty sufficient for us for our digestibility and nutrition. So these are just things you want to weigh. If your health would benefit by increased digestibility of doing sprouting and sourdough, go for it. And then just keep in mind that gluten breaks down more the more you do methods. So sprouting plus sourdough is going to have an even increased breakdown in gluten. All right, so I hope this is helpful, Marianne. And if you have additional questions, feel free to visit the comments, knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash 128. Next question is from Shank who says, thank you for your many helpful videos. I have some questions though. Why would you use whole grains if they have more phytic acid than white rice, white flour, etc.? Is it just a preference or is some, there some health reason? Also in your sourdough e-course, you used a Vitamix. Could I replace that with a blender or a food processor? Looking forward to your reply. Okay, so the first question about whole grains and phytic acid. And this is a great question because I've been discussing it you know, in previous questions. So please do listen to that as well. Um, so whole grains, just like any whole food, you've got fiber and nutrition, and it's our belief that the whole package is um, just to honor as much of the whole food as possible because of God's design. Now, we also know that there's the phytic acid and the enzyme inhibitors, and so that's why we use traditional food preparation methods. But if we can help it, we just want to stick with the whole grains because of the increased fiber, the nutrition. And then we use the traditional methods of preparation like sourdough to reduce the phytic acid. So you kind of get the best of both worlds. You get the whole food and you get the reduction of anti-nutrients. Now, having said all that, I do love to sift einkorn flour or even whole wheat flour after milling it, grinding it, because it performs better. Um... In the Bible, it talks about fine flour. Well, that's sifted flour. And you can make really lovely, like, you know, baked goods with fine flour. It's, what, worthy of kings or something like that. There's, there, in the Bible, there's some discussion of it being, um, you know, for luxury or royalty or something, a fine feast. And it's so true that when you sift your flour, when you sift, you're actually removing the parts that contain phytic acid, um, it's going to perform better, better, lighter texture. So I do that a lot um, with 
with certain baked goods because I like the texture. Now, your second question about in your sourdough course, you used a Vitamix. Could you replace that with a blender or food processor? Okay, I'm not sure where you're talking about a Vitamix in the sourdough e-course. Um, if you're talking about grinding grains with a Vitamix, um, no, you can't replace it with a blender or food processor because they simply can't grind the grain like a Vitamix can. The Vitamix dry container can do a pretty nice flour. Some tips are, um, just because I'm on the subject, you never use more than two cups of grain at a time. You use the tamper the whole time, and you go an extra 15 seconds longer than they say. So they say two minutes, I believe. So you go to two minutes and 15 seconds, and you get a really nice fine flour by adhering to those kind of guidelines. Um, if you're talking about a Vitamix, like to blend a batter or something like that, blenders and food processors quite often do well with that kind of stuff. Now, um, some blenders are not as powerful, so you know, you're maybe not going to get the same result. If, if I'm talking about whizzing sugar, like I was talking about earlier, to make a fine powder, I've compared a food processor with a Vitamix. The food processor, the sugar is kind of coarse. The Vitamix, it's very fine and nice. Another blender is probably going to do just fine compared to a Vitamix on whizzing sugar. Um, if you're talking about something soft like oats, like making an oat flour or chopping up oats, um, the blender is going to be just fine and do a great job on the Vitamix. If you're talking about hard grains, you know, like even cracking grains, not to mention flour, um, the blender is going to have a hard time with that. So hopefully that's a good enough roundup of the differences that you can know where to go with what in particular you have in mind. Thanks so much for your question, Shank. Okay, this question is from April. Uh, hi, Wardy. I wonder if you have any advice about what to do in place of stocking powdered milk when storing food for emergencies. Canned coconut milk is an option, but it's expensive, and I'm only able to handle it in small amounts due to allergy. Do you have any other thoughts, suggestions for a healthy alternative? Okay, I have just a couple suggestions, actually not very many. So first of all, um, you can do dry... I don't know what it's called, but Wilderness Family Naturals carries it. It's a powdered coconut milk where you blend and combine it with hot water and you kind of reconstitute into coconut milk. And it's healthy. I find it delicious. Um, of course, you have an allergy to coconut, so you couldn't have it that much, but you could stock a little bit of it. It's not, of course, as inexpensive as powdered dry milk, um, but it's a quality product that could provide you with some options. Another thing you could do homemade is to um, dehydrate yogurt. You lay it out in your dehydrator sheets, you dry it, and then what you're going to do is blend or food processor it to make flakes or powder. And then you can reconstitute it and blend it with water and you get like a very thin yogurt. But this can be used for soaking, can be used in smoothies, um, you know, anything that you would need a dairy for that you can, that a, a sour flavor is allowable. So that's an option for you as well. So maybe be between the dehydrated yogurt and some of that uh, coconut milk powder, um, you'd cover your bases. Other than that, I don't really have any tips. So here's where I'm going to open it up to everybody listening. Visit the show notes, knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash 128, and chime in with ideas for April about how what to do in place of stocking powdered milk. Um, and April, I do want to add that... Um, 
frankly, powdered milk doesn't even factor into our um, food storage. So I think we'd probably just do without rather than try to have an alternative or a major alternative. I mean, I do have dehydrated yogurt and I do have some packages of can, um, powdered coconut milk, but I just, it's just not a major part. Okay. Thanks for your question. Next question is from Mary G. She says, what is your favorite kefir cheese recipe? And by the way, Mary asked this on Facebook. So (laughs) Mary, I have just a very simple answer for you. My favorite kefir cheese recipe is just kefir cheese with salt. I mean, it's very simple. Drain the kefir through cheesecloth and you get this soft spreadable cheese and you just add salt. It's also nice to add herbs or garlic powder like for a dip. That's a favorite as well. Kefir cheese is just so delicious. Next question is from Paula C. What veg can you not ferment? Which ones have the highest probiotic rate to the least? Okay, so the first part of that question, what veg can you not ferment? Actually, you can ferment all veg. (laughs) However, some tend toward all alcohol. Those are the higher sugar ones. So you are you'd use kind of more specialized recipes. You also um, consume them more quickly before they turn to alcohol. So example would be like beets. Um, If you're making kvass, the recommendation is to use chunks of beets rather than shredded beets, because if you do shredded beets, the sugar is just going to ruin your ferment. Um, You can, however, ferment shredded beets. Just plenty of salt. I use a veggie starter. Don't ferment it long. And then, of course, that's a food that you want to consume quickly. If you ferment fruit, and I know your question is about veg. I'm not sure if you're including fruit in that. But fruits tend toward alcohol. So if you're doing a chutney or a fermented fruit paste or anything like that, that's something you want to consume within a couple weeks rather than a couple months because as time goes by in cool storage, it'll tend toward alcohol. Okay, so you also asked... Which ones have the highest probiotic rate to the least? Well, with probiotics... As I was talking about in the beginning of this episode, there's so many factors involved in fermentation. And it's such an artistic, artisan process. It's not really a counting process. So because of all those factors, um, rather than asking what's the highest probiotic rate to the least, I really think we should be looking at the culture and like the conditions. And so... If you're doing lacto-fermentation, which involves lactobacilli, um, are you getting a strong ferment out of it? And that can depend on the quality of the vegetables. It can depend on whether you introduce a starter culture. It can depend on if the salt was right, if the temperature was right. So do you have a strong ferment when you're done? Did it bubble plenty and have a good texture and just have that wonderful sour flavor, which means there's plenty of organisms to produce sour? Those are the things you want to look for in terms of if it has a strong probiotic colony. Um, Other things, like what culture was it? I I just mentioned lactobacilli, but if you're talking about making dairy kefir or yogurt, like the dairy kefir has way more diversity of probiotics than a yogurt culture. So you could make an argument that kefir is more healthy for you than yogurt because it has, I don't know, 10 times as many different probiotics, which is just better diversity and, and um, you know, overall culture for your gut. 
So that's something to consider. Another thing to consider are the end nutrients. Like sauerkraut, for instance, is a total powerhouse. It's just unparalleled when it comes to the vitamin C content in the end result. So those are the things I recommend you consider. And don't spend, I personally don't spend a lot of time thinking about the highest probiotic rate. What I think about is diversity in, in ferments that we're eating. I think about, are we eating them regularly? And I think about producing the best ferment I can. And all of that will contribute to a healthy gut. Thanks for your question, Paula. Thank you, everyone. Quick review here. Paula, Mary, April, Shank, Marianne, Donna, Lindsay, Mayra, Thank you all for your questions, um, and I welcome any of you, plus any who are listening, to visit the show notes, knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash 128 to continue the conversation in the comments. God bless you all, and I'll talk to you again in another week. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope to see you again very soon. Let me tell you what you can do next. You can visit the show notes for this episode. Just go to knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash, and then, without a space, type the number of this episode. You'll get links and much more information about what we've been talking about. You can submit questions for future episodes. I love to answer your questions on the air, so go to knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash questions to submit them. You can stop by traditionalcookingschool.com to get five free traditional cooking videos from me. And finally, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, the podcast app, or Stitcher. If you're on a mobile device, just search for Know Your Food with Wardy while you're in the app. If you're on a desktop or laptop, go to knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash iTunes right in your browser. And while you're there, please leave a rating or review. I love to read your comments and your feedback makes it much more likely that other people will find this podcast. Thank you so much.